intertwined with all your wrinkles perfectly suiting mine oh somewhere down the up our uh, four loves series. All right, four loves series. Finishing up today. So if you've got a Bible, Romans chapter five, Romans chapter five, if you're new to the Bible, Romans is in the New Testament. So if you go all the way about 80% of the way through your Bible, uh, of course, it really helps if you have a phone. Uh, very few of us actually have a text copy of the Bible anymore. Pull out your phone. Uh, want you to be able to follow along on the YouVersion app or the, or the Holy Bible app. You can follow along right there on their live events. You can grab my notes there uh, as well. I'm going to be in a lot of scripture this morning, but primarily uh, in Romans chapter 5. So that's where you guys want uh, to be. So finishing up the series uh, because we, we think that this word love is a little bit confusing. Imagine if you were a foreigner to the United States or an English-speaking country uh, and you tried to figure out and you had multiple words for love and you came in here and we only have one word for love. It, it just trying to decipher what people mean by this one word. Culturally, we've grown up in this and we understand uh, wholeheartedly that there is, uh, you know, there, there is something different about the word love. We, we, we mean different things by it uh, and it makes zero sense most of the time. Now, I looked this up in an urban dictionary. This is kind of fun. So the word good, we have 187 ways of saying good. All right. Here, just, just for kicks. Okay. Cool. Tight, fire, fine, hot, great, ballin', jammin', hummin', rockin', wicked, gravy, bueno, sharp, butter, da bomb, dapper, and dope. And if all else fails, you can literally say, that's bad. And that means good. We have all these words for good, but we only got one word for love. One word. And we know it because there's different, I guess, different levels, right? Different levels of love. And the Greeks had multiple words for this. And so that's where our sermon series comes from. It comes out of a book by C.S. Lewis called The Four uh, Loves. And so we've outlined those four loves. If you're new, if you missed it, that's okay. The first week we talked about storge, a storge love, which is familial love. It's instinctual love that we are born with, okay, that we're born with. And lo- uh, it's, it's love that we have for our parents or our children or our siblings, something like that. Uh, so we, you would never say, and it'd be a little bit weird, you would, you would never say, Mom, I'm falling in love with you. Like, that'd just be weird. You, you would never say that. Uh, you, your love for your mother is an instinctual love that you have for her, for your children. You don't fall in love with your children. You just are. You are loving your children. Chris pointed out in that first week uh, that we should, have, we should have this kind of love within the church, that we are brothers and sisters adopted into the same family of God, and therefore we love one another with this storge love. The second week of phileo, uh, we looked at phileo, which is a brotherly love, a brotherly love. And this is the kind of love that we get from shared experience with other people. It's the love that soldiers get uh, for each other while they're on the battlefield. This is the love that you have uh, for your high school and college friends and the reason why you would want to go to a reunion. 
That's the reason why you would want to go, because you love them and you care for them. You, you desire to be with them. You have that shared experience uh, with them. Uh, and, and, you know, it's the reason why if you have an old friend that you love with this kind of phileo love, that it's been years since you've seen them, and you can get back together with them, and it's, it's just like you just left off. I mean, it, there's no time at all in between that because of that phileo love. And last week we talked about eros, right? Eros, the romantic Love, romantic love. This is what I call the gateway to agape in a marriage relationship. And we talked about, you know, different types of eros that there's love and joyful passion shared between a man and a wife. And we had a time of kind of recommitment uh, to our spouses last week. And so I'm fully expecting that in nine months we're going to have a little bit of a baby boom. It's going to be awesome. All right. Uh, So all leading up to the most widely used form of love in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. And that is agape. Agape love. So it, the Greeks had their word for it, but what's interesting is they didn't have a source for it. The Greeks didn't have a source for this, but they, could, they, could, they made this word and they could, they could define it. But they didn't, they didn't know of a possibility in which it could be used. Um, and so it was actually very rare until the, old, the, until the New Testament was written. The New Testament was written in Greek. And agape is the main form of love that happens in the Greek text. It's, it, the New Testament has more uh, occasions of agape than any other ancient Greek text. Because it's talking about the love of God, that the love that God has for us. And so this is how I'll define it. It'll be up there if you're taking notes. The highest form of unconditional, sacrificial affection of, of God towards his creation. Okay? The highest form of unconditional, sacrificial affection of God towards his creation. Or if we want to just put it in one term, unconditional love unconditional love. It's the highest form. I love the way that Jesus Storybook Bible, if you don't have one and you have young kids, I would really highly recommend that you get a Jesus Storybook Bible because it says this phrase over and over again. I love this phrase. It says that God loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It repeats that throughout the book. It's fantastic to say that to your children, that God has a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love for them. So, Here's what I've noticed. I've noticed that it is super easy to say God loves you. We can say that to people, and it's actually decently easy. Let's practice for a moment. Turn to the person next to you. Look at them right in the eyes and say, hey, God loves you. Do it. Go for it. Pretty easy. It's actually kind of difficult to say it without a smile, right? Uh, you, 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 know, you, just, you can say it. And what's interesting is we believe that. Like, I believe that. I, I truly do believe that God loves you in a deep, this, this never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I believe that God loves you. It is true. And I can say that all day long. But here's what's difficult. It's difficult for me to say God loves me. Think about that. I don't say that very often. The reason why I can say God loves you is I don't know what you've done. I don't know the multitude of your sin. 
I don't understand your thoughts. I don't know you that well. I can tell you that God loves you, but I don't have the hurdle or the, the barricade of, of your sin. I, I don't know of that. And so I can easily say that God loves you, but I know myself. I know the sin that's in my heart. And so when I look at it and I say, okay, well, it's, a, it's easy for me to say God loves you, but it's difficult for me to say that God loves me because I know the terrible things that I've done. I had a, uh, this hit me the other day because I had a friend of mine that I was sitting with and he was kind of doing some coaching for me and, uh, and I was telling him that, that the church has been gracious enough to uh, grant me a sabbatical that starts in May. And so I'm going to be away for a little while and, and uh, don't worry, I'm coming back. But uh, we'll let away for a little bit. And uh, it's just a time of refreshment, a time of renewal uh, for me and my family. Uh, we're, excited, we're excited about that. And uh, my friend, he was praying about that for me and with me. And he said, he said this, and it struck me. He said, Father, I know that you are excited about spending undistracted time with Charlie. And, when, when he, and I'm like, What? It felt prideful. It, it felt weird in that moment that he prayed, and, I, and it was hard for me to even hear. He said, I know that you, talking to God, are excited about spending chi- time with Charlie. I, does God get excited? Like, I, like, I, I don't, I, it was so strange for me to hear that. But that's because I have a hard time believing that God loves me. I, I, I I, I, maybe he puts up with me or tolerates me, but I'm not completely sure that he loves me. And, and the reason why I think that, and I do believe that, that person was right when he prayed that, by the way, but I, I have a hard time. And I don't think I'm alone in that because it doesn't come naturally for me to believe that God loves me. It doesn't come naturally. And I don't think it should come naturally. Because here's the deal. I don't think that God should love us. God shouldn't love us. Period. Think about that for a second. There's two reasons why I think that God shouldn't love us. Number one, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. God has eternally existed from eternal, eternal past into the eternal future, like if you can get your mind around that, I want to have a conversation about it with you, but God has always existed. He never had a start. He never had a beginning. Like the Bible says that he's the alpha and the omega. Every, every, he has always been. There's never been a start to God. And there was a time in eternity past where we did not exist, where nothing existed but God. Bible says it this way in Acts 17, 24, you can look it on the screens. It says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Psalm 90 verse two says this, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. First Timothy six sixteen says, God alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The Bible speaks about a God who is completely sufficient in every way. God does not get lonely, ever. He did not create us so that he might have a friend. 
He didn't, he didn't say, you know, I need, I, I need some friends. I need some companions. I need like a fellowship of the ring. Like, I, I, like he didn't say that. He doesn't get bored. God doesn't need entertainment. He doesn't need us. He has always eternally existed in community. Now, this is, this is big, but, he, but this, we understand that we, we serve a trinity, a, a, a God who is triune, meaning that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And from eternal past, he has always had community together with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's never been alone. And so, therefore, he's never needed anybody. He is completely sufficient in every sort of way. And this is where God, this separates agape love from every other form of love. Because every other form of love is need of community. Think about it for a second. Storge, the familial love. Children need the love of their parents. They need the love of their parents. We need family. As a father, I need my children. If I didn't have my children, it would be regret and remorse. I, I, I desire them. I need them. I love them. Storge them, but I am in need of them. I am not self-sufficient beyond myself. God created us and commanded us to be fruitful and multiply, which he- it is heavy on our hearts. It is how we are wired. We're wired for family. So storge is dependent. Phileo, also dependent. We are created for community. Studies show over and over and over again that people live longer, live better lives, and more abundant lives if they had friends. It's not a hard concept. We're wired for community to live and love one another. Eros, there is no such thing as romance without another person. Right? Someone who is in love with themselves is a narcissist, not a romantic. Right? You have to have another person for Eros to happen. Right? Eros, by by definition, is dependent upon another person. But God is completely self-sufficient. God shouldn't love us because he doesn't need us. To make matters worse, here's the second thing. Because of our sin, we are his enemy. Not only does he not need us, but we are his enemy. The Bible doesn't mince words about this. Romans 3, 11 through 13. We'll be up on the screen. None, of, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's saying that we follow the devil. We are enemies of God. We are broken in our own sin. We have turned our back from God. We have ignored him. We have disobeyed him. And we have failed to love him him and trust him. So God shouldn't love us. He doesn't need us. And even, even then, we're enemies of him. Imagine for a second that your wife one day brings home a box. And inside of that box, she says, I have gotten us a new cat. That's me that brings evil thoughts. She says, I got a new cat for us. And you're looking at her and you said, I didn't think we needed a new cat. 
said, I know, but I really wanted to get a new cat. And you're like, I, we've got pets. we got children. we got to feed them all. I don't, I don't need any more pets. And you're like, why? She's like, I really wanted this cat. She opens up the box. And you look inside the box. And it's not a cat. It's a possum. And it's nasty. You're looking at that and you're like, I didn't need that. I don't want that in our home. It's nasty. It smells. It's, it, it bites people. Like it hates. Possums hate you. They hate everything. I don't need a possum. Possums hate me. And I hate possums. If we can get our mind around that idea, that's the reason why God shouldn't love us. doesn't need us. And we sin against him. He shouldn't love us at all. When I was a child, um, little, little kid, I had, most, like most of your children, I had a, a specific toy. It was a, uh, it wasn't a stuffed animal. I'd say it was a stuffed, it was, it was kind of like that. It, it was made out of like a spongy material. And uh, it was my favorite toy. It was a thing that I drug around with me wherever I went. And uh, it was a, um, y'all remember Toys R Us? Y'all remember Toys R Us? Okay, it's, it's oh, God rest his soul. You know, it's, it's, it's gone now. But uh, anyway, Toys R Us had a mascot. Anybody remember his name? Yeah, <laughs> all right, cool. 80s, awesome. Um, so Toys R Us had a mascot, and his name was Jeffrey. It was a little giraffe. Maybe he's a big giraffe, I don't know. But I had a little giraffe. His name was Jeffrey. And he had a little yellow shirt. He had a little pair of jeans on. And I took Jeffrey wherever I wanted. He's made up these like spongy material and had wires inside of him so you can bend his arm and he'd wave at you. You know, all sorts of stuff. And I had this as a little, little kid. Took it wherever I went. We went on a vacation. That's where I went. Went to the store. That's where I brought Jeffrey. Jeffrey came along. And uh, I remember one, one time I left him at a store. And I cried, and I wept, and I wept, and I wept. And I cannot believe that my parents did this to this day, that they went back, drove across town to go get Jeffrey from the store to make sure uh, that, I mean, they probably spent all sorts of money and time to go get Jeffrey from the store to make sure that I had Jeffrey. It's a, it's a big deal to me. And Jeffrey got worn, and clothes got tattered, and things broke. The wires broke inside of him. And as I grew older, I didn't bring him everywhere I went. Um, but, you know, we went through. My mom was, was a purger. Any other, like, you know, those, those, like, every spring you do, like, a good purge, right? You know, every, big boxes that go to Salvation Army. Who does that? All right, who doesn't do that? Yeah, you need to do that. Okay, so, uh, so my mom was a purger, got rid of a bunch of stuff, you know. And every season, Jeffrey made the cut. I mean, into my teens, y'all, like, it was, I mean, everything else was gone. You know, I had normal sports stuff. But Jeffrey had a special place in the back of my closet, in the back shelf. And it was, every year it was like, are you going to throw this thing away? No, 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 i got to keep it back. When I graduated from high school, I, my mom was kicking me out of my room. So she's like, take all your stuff, either get rid of it or pack it up for college. Or you're gonna, and she gave me two big Tupperware things where I could put some stuff that they were going to keep in the attic. And so Jeffrey went in, she, he made the cut, right? Uh, and so Jeffrey went into the big uh, Tupperware containers, and 
Uh, you know, when I came back from college, he's like, you really need to go through this stuff. You probably don't want it. So I went through a bunch of it, and Jeffrey made the cut there, right? I'm going to keep old Jeffrey. He's going to be around. Uh, <laughs> into marriage, my parents kept these big Tupperwares. And, and I remember my, my parents are now going to be moving. So recently they brought, they brought these big Tupperware things to my house. And they said, this is now your stuff. We're not going to keep it. And I opened it up, and there's baseball cards and all sorts of stuff in there. And lo and behold, there's Jeffrey. And my wife, is, she's like, what is that? And, uh, and, and I, was, I was like, hey, you know, it, it's just tattered and broken, and, and the, the wire that goes through his neck is not there anymore, so it's just like that. And, uh, and, and, I, and, 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 I ca- and she's like, if you're going to keep that, you're not going to keep it here. So I brought it here to my office, right? And, uh, and what's funny is this morning I was looking for him, and I couldn't find him. Liz, my, our administrative assistant, was like, can I help you find him? I'm like, ah, this is a little strange to be looking for an animal. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, and now we're supposed to preach, and I can't find this thing. And I'm like, oh, i got to go home and go get it. He made the cut. And uh, so I hid him behind some books. But here's Jeffrey. There you go. Um, now, this has absolutely no earthly value at all. It is a broken, beat-up toy that is a little bit gruesome in the back, right? And the only reason that Jeffrey has any value at all is because I love him. That's it. He has no value to anyone but me. The reason why he continues to live and doesn't go in the trash is because of me. The only reason that if someone found him after you've known his story, you wouldn't throw him away because you know that I love him. And now that you've seen him and you've heard his story, you love him a little bit too. God should not love us, but he does. And that he does, even though we don't deserve it, and we are of no value to him at all, he loves us, and therefore we become lovable because of him. Not because of anything that we do, not because we are inherently valuable, but because he loves us, Therefore, we are lovable. God shouldn't love us. God took a nobody named Abraham and made him lovable. And therefore, he became the father of the people of Israel. God took a murderer, his name was Moses, who was unlovable and used him to lead his people to redeem them. God used a shepherd boy who was unlovable. He had murdered people murdered somebody, committed adultery, but used him as the greatest king in all of Israel. God took a a woman, a peasant girl named Esther, who was unlovable, unusable, and made her the queen and protected the people of Israel. God took a sinful woman named Mary, and she became the one who was the first to tell the good news of the resurrection. God took a serial murderer named Paul, who was very unlovable, and made him the greatest missionary the world has ever known. 
we are unlovable until God makes us lovable. So God should not love us at all. What does agape mean exactly? So what is the tangible essence of agape? That's where we're going to dig into the scripture in Romans chapter 5. So look at your Bibles. Let's read this together, okay? Romans chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 6. If you're there, say, I'm there. Awesome. For while we were still weak, and when I say weak, I'm thinking that unlovable rag, think, think Jeffrey for just a second, all right? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, uh, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we, are also, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So I want us to dig into this. And here's, here's the essence of God's agape love for us. So if, you, so if you're taking notes, just very simple terms here. You might have heard this. If you have heard these things before, I want you to bask in the glory of God's love for you. Let it go deep into your soul. If you've never heard this before, let this be the best news that you've ever heard. The first thing is this, that God's love justifies us. God's love justifies us. It is the legal standing before a holy God. That before we were enemies of God, that we are guilty before him, that now we have a chance to go to an eternal life and not an eternal death in hell. But we are justified. Okay? And you might, you might say, you might say but, but I'm a good person. This is all of us. We think that. We think, I am a good person. I do good things. I'm in church today. Look at me. I'm a good person. There's no way that God would send me to hell. I'm a good person. I do good things. The Bible talks about that. In very graphic language, Isaiah 64, 6 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Now, I want us to focus for just a second. It's graphic, but here's the deal. Polluted garment in Hebrew, that's a a very, very kind of uh, G-rated version of saying menstrual rag. In our vernacular, it is used tampons. It's disturbing. The image is disturbing. And that's the point. God is saying your best deeds, the good things that you do, the very things when you say that I'm a good person, the Bible says that it's like dirty tampons. You are nothing more than a rag. And the only thing that you can do with that is throw it away. You are worthy of the trash. That is it. That's our place before God. But verse 8 says this, and it's one of the greatest verses in your Bible. Underline it, whatever you need to do. 
But God shows his love, his agape, write that in the margin, his agape love for us. And that while we were still sinners, not while we had gotten ourselves clean or done enough good acts or whatever, or gone to church enough times, that's not what it says. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, then now we have a choice. We come before God and we have to make a choice. Am I going to follow God or am I not? This is the justification. This is a one moment in history. Are we going to be guilty? Are we going to be innocent? If we decide to give ourselves to God and say, God, I want you. I want to receive you. I desire you in my life. We say that, then we move from guilty to innocent. A judgment needs to be made. And now God looks at us if we decide to say, Jesus, I desperately need you. I cannot rely on my good works alone. I need you. That's when God justifies us through the blood of Jesus Christ that came from the cross. And he justifies us and says, you are now not only not guilty, you are innocent. You are as innocent as my son Jesus was. God justifies us through his love. I love the, the verse in uh, verse 11. It, kind of, it has one of these like kind of infomercial type ways. It says, but wait, there's more, right? Verse 11 says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What that means is is this. So God justifies us, and then God frees us. God's love frees us to rejoice, to have joy in our life. Where there's no more sorrow, there is only joy. There is freedom from the bondage of sin. That our Christian life is not only about a future life. Sometimes we think that, that our Christian life is just about our future. It's just about the eternal life. I'm just waiting. It's my get out of hell free card. It's my heaven card. I, I get to go there one day. But we, what we forget is, is that God promises an abundant life with him, with him giving us freedom from sin. Galatians 5.1. You don't have to turn there. It says this. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Meaning that he has taken away your sin. You can live freely now. That the love of God does this for us and only justifies us but frees us and allows us to have great confidence to walk abundantly in life. Last spring my son played, my son had and he's uh, he's eight. He'll yeah, he's eight. Keep it together. <laughs> um, he played uh, baseball uh, uh, machine pitch baseball last year. And it was his first time, you know, being able to hit off, you know, not on a tee. And so uh, he was he was up to, I mean, so I was, one time I was late uh, to the game. I had a meeting or something like that, and I was, I was going to the game, but I was late. And uh, I got there, and I, I remember, like, uh, walking from the parking lot to the uh, to where the game was, and I saw from afar, oh, that's my son, he's up at bat. He just, he was walking up to bat. And uh, so I'm walking, I'm kind of like halfway jogging to make sure that I can see and get there. Uh, and it just so happened that that was his second at bat of the game. Uh, and, and I remember watching kind of from afar. It looked really interesting. He didn't swing at the first couple pitches. And, and I remember getting him closer, and he was standing in the very back of the batter's box uh, and, and just kind of standing there just like this in the back of the batter's box. And his coach, they only got five pitches in machine pitch ba- baseball, and so he, he just didn't even swing at the first two. And then uh, for the next three pitches, his, co- his coach said, Haddon, you have to swing. You have to swing at the pitch. And I remember watching, and, and he's in the back of the batter's box, and, and he's, he's not even close. He's just barely swinging the bat. And I look at one of the team moms, and I'm like, what, what in the world is, what is going on? What, what was that all about? And she said, oh, you weren't here for his first at bat, 
uh, Haddon got hit by one of the pitches, and uh, and now he's, he's scared to death. And so I remember thinking, he just needs the love of his dad, some confidence. And so right before he was to go up at bat again for the third time in the game, I pulled him aside, got him out of the dugout, looked at him, got on his level, and I told him, Haddon, I love you. There is nothing to be afraid of. I know that you can hit the ball. Go out there and do it. I love you. You're my son. You can do it. And the third time was completely different. His, his yoke and burden was lifted off of him. He stood there with confidence. I have no idea what happened. I wish I could tell you that he hit a home run. But I just remember him, I just remember watching him with a change. There was a change in confidence. There was, there was, an, there was a change in life right there where he knew that his father was supportive. He knew that his father was there. He knew that his father loved him. And that gave him freedom and confidence to stand there, right? So before we're slaves to our own sin, and we know it's wrong, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, you know that when you lie, it's wrong. God has wired you that way. You know that when you cheat, it's wrong. You know that when you steal, it's wrong. God has wired these laws within our souls. We, we know that it is wrong. We know that when we, gosh, when we look at something on the internet that's inappropriate, we know that it's wrong. But the problem is, before Christ, we couldn't do anything about it. We were broken in our bondage and in our sin. We couldn't get it off of us. It was an addiction. Christ's love, God's love for us, the very fact when you say that God loves me, it frees you to walk away from your sin forever. Last one, God's love adopts us. God's love adopts us. The end of verse 11, through whom we have now received reconciliation, that God has brought us back into relationship with him. And the language in the Bible is that we now become family. Later on in the book of Romans, Romans 8, 15 says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, he has written us now into his story as sons and daughters. The love of God is an unconditional love. And I, and I love how he has chosen this, chosen this idea of adoption. Because before in the Old Testament, it's his people, it's his children, it's one family, it's one bloodline that God cares about. But then Christ comes into the picture and he opens up his love for the entire world. And he says, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to choose you. It's not that you were just born. It was, I'm going to choose you. And that, that God chooses to love us. He doesn't have to love us. He wants to love us. He doesn't need to love us. He wants to love you. He desires you. It's not just that he just happens to have you. It's that he, he has chosen you and he wants to bring you into his house. He wants to give you value because he loves you. And if you are ready this morning and if you've never understood the love of God and this is the first time that you've really heard it and understood it, I desire to explain it more to you so that you can come to a place where you accept that into your life. We can have that opportunity after the service today where we can talk about that. Now, for those of us who are believers, the church in here, we have to understand God's love for us and how he has called us to then love others. That God's agape love for us 
should compel us to love other people. Think about it for a second. The world does not love like the church loves. It just doesn't happen. By the world's standards, and we see this on the news, you'll see this on Facebook, you'll see it all over the place, we shouldn't love those people. If those people, if we don't want them, we've got enough people. I've got enough people in my life. I don't need more friends. I'm good. I've got enough friends. I've got enough family. I've got enough people to deal with. I don't need more relationships with people. And besides, they don't even like me. They don't like hanging out with me. I don't like hanging out with them. I don't need more friends. And they do things in life differently than I do. Why would I want to be friends with them? It doesn't make any logical sense. Why you would love the outcast? Why would you love somebody who has a different political opinion than you do? That, why, do why you would love somebody that has a different skin color than you do? Why you would love somebody that has a different nationality than you do? No, you don't need them. And no, you might not even like them, and they might not even like you. But the essence of the gospel is that we go after people who despise us. And we love our enemies. And even though it feels like we don't have enough room in our life for more relationships, we go after them. Because we want them. Because we want to love them like the love of Christ. 1 John 3.23 says this, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, of his Son, Jesus Christ, and, 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 very important conjunction there, and, and love one another just as he has commanded us to love. Should we love other people? Logically, not really. Is it in our interest? Not really. Is it going to cost us time? Yes. Is it going to cost us money? Yes. Is it going to mess with your life? Absolutely. But we are proclaimers of this gospel and we desire people and want to choose people and bring them into our lives. The possums of our life need to come into our homes. And we need to love them and care for them. And they need to experience the love of God because the only way that they are going to be lovable is if they meet their Creator. So let's think like that, church. When you meet a coworker, when you meet somebody on your street or wherever, or a neighbor, and you're just like, oh, I really don't like this person. We need to think about the love of God and what God has done for us. He didn't, he didn't have to love you either. But we need to think about that. So I'm going to pray. If you, if you had... If you, uh, heard about the love of God today and it's the first time it really makes sense to you, I want to talk to you about that. Come and grab me after the service. I would love for you to respond in a way that God will save you and justify your life and you will live that life abundantly. Let's pray together. God, thank you for an opportunity now that we can clearly hear um, what you have, how you have loved us how um, you have given to us your Son, Jesus Christ. That even when we were sinners, that you loved us so much that you would give your most beloved Son, your beloved child, you gave for us who didn't love you. That makes no sense. But God, your agape love is unconditional It's beyond our sphere of understanding, and God, I'm thankful. 
So God, help us to understand a little bit more of what it means, how it works, that we might be a church that desires to love people unconditionally and sacrificially with a never-ending, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. God, help us to love like that. It's in your good name of Jesus we pray. Amen.